0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Helen and I'm Riley. Today we're taking on cults,
1: which I feel like are all the rage at the moment. There certainly has been some cult content around. I watched that Netflix documentary about that hectic cult in America. Oh, which one? Yeah, true. I've I need to <laughs> narrow all down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, the um the. Uh, something the latter day set the latter day saints, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. brother, whatever that one, and they had they have all the wives one with all the wives. <laughs> okay, yeah, there
0: have also been a lot of like movies about cults out, and all of them starring Florence Pugh. I'm just saying,
1: mm, suspicious. Maybe she's <laughs> trying to build a cult. We could theoretically start a cult. Hey, anyone could start a cult, right? Yeah, they're also like legal. I get, Yeah. Yeah. I guess unless you're doing illegal stuff in them it's just yeah exactly the organization the affiliation that's fine all right let's jump into our cult today well let's not let's not jump into our cult today but let's
0: just from a distance talk about it shall we from the (laughs) sidelines yeah yeah a safe safe few kilometers away (laughs) So, the 1960s in Australia was a decade which saw immense social change. Post war globalization was in full swing, and there was an influx of culture from the United States, and television and radio were now mainstream in most households. People were breaking away from traditional ways of thinking. Against the picturesque backdrop of the Dandenong Ranges, southeast of Melbourne, this free thinking way of life was gaining prominence. But something sinister was about to take hold. A woman by the name of Anne Hamilton Byrne was preying on new age groups, targeting vulnerable people and building one of Australia's largest cults. The Dandenong Ranges are not that far from Melbourne. Central. They're only about like an hour drive from Central. And my boyfriend's from there.
1: (laughs) Fun fact. Spooky. It's very nice out there. It is actually. It's very beautiful.
0: I've heard about this cult before as well. So... Did I get cult vibes while I was there? Not really. Just like tranquil hippie vibes. But not like, whoa, what's going on here? None of that. Mm. (laughs) And it's also interesting to know that this is a female-led cult.
1: Yes. Even rarer than the garden variety cult. I feel like most cult leaders are, are men. Yeah, and like half of, a lot of cults are about like,
0: I'm I'm Jesus. I am God. Mm. I've returned. And uh, I guess we associate that more with a manly figure or vision than a woman.
1: Yes. As Ariana Grande would say, God is a woman, which leads me to think that the <laughs> reincarnation of God could also be a woman. <laughs> or that Ariana Grande is going to start a cult. <laughs> yeah, true. That's the other conclusion you can come to. <laughs>
0: Anne Hamilton-Byrne was not her real name, but was the result of her desire for a new identity and multiple marriages. Born as Evelyn Grace Victoria Edwards in 1921, Anne grew up during the Great Depression in a small farming town about two hours east of Melbourne. She was one of seven children. Anne's mother, Florence, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and placed in a psychiatric asylum after setting her hair on fire in the middle of the street. Her father was a labourer who moved frequently, pursuing work. With no stable household, Anne spent time in and out of orphanages as a child. Potentially seeking some sense of stability, Anne married relatively young, when she was about 20 years old. They had one daughter together, and after reportedly suffering a number of miscarriages, they were arranging to adopt a second child when Anne's husband died suddenly and tragically in a car accident. After suffering a great deal of loss in her 20s, Anne turned to the emerging practice of yoga in her mid-thirties. By the early 1960s, Anne became a yoga teacher, and she captivated a lucrative market, middle-aged women living in Melbourne's well-off eastern suburbs. That is a lucrative market. Yeah, the Q mums. Anne was passionate about her practice, and her clients quickly became just as devoted as Anne. Those close to her say she had a knack for getting under people's skin, targeting their vulnerabilities. Anne was well-dressed and wore pearls and Chanel perfume, she had long blonde hair, even though she was naturally a redhead, and even played the harp. All ideal traits if you wanted to claim you were the reincarnation of Christ. The harp bit is sending me. The harp bit I is know. a lot.
1: Who plays the harp? I've <laughs> only ever encountered one person who's played the harp.
0: Yeah, well,
1: there's only ever one of them in an orchestra, if the yeah. orchestra even needs a harp. Exactly. So they were at uni and they were purely there to they were being paid <laughs> to go there and play the harp exactly she really said i'm a cherub yeah
0: apparently when she looked at you with her blue gray eyes it felt as though she was looking into your soul like some kind of mythical enchantress and you've put here
1: in brackets or
0: a vila, if you're a harry potter stan but i i can't remember what that is
1: mm, see i'm currently rereading oh, Harry Potter, oh so we fresh get for it me. you're reading the books it's all fresh <laughs> for me because i've never read them so i'm I say that I'm rereading, but I'm, at this point, it's for the first time going into it's my brain. It's fresh. <laughs> and I am up to the fourth one. Some say that Fleur, from the fourth book, is oh, like yeah. part Vila. Because she is able to like, just capture the, uh... everyone's, the, all the men in the room just are like, uh, oh yes. <laughs> so she's a hot bitch. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I don't think those were in the movie. That's probably why I don't remember them. They weren't in the movie and I feel like they should have been because it really explains Ron's thing for Fleur like way better. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Ron's thing for Fleur also self-explains itself. She's yeah. very pretty. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does a little bit as well. And French. Yeah. Those little blue dresses. Oh, yeah. They're like, ah, oh, and this one, little there's little like hats. butterflies. <laughs> oh. They're doing the most. Also, in the books, there's boys at that school. <laughs> But that's, a whole, that's another thing.
0: Mm, yeah, they really did that. They really said Russians are men and French are women. And, what um, is that about? They had them walk in in the most gendered entrance that I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. <laughs> but this isn't a Harry Potter podcast, <laughs> so we won't go
1: there. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a side project.
0: Often, the women who came to her classes were a little older, but Anne was known to lie about her age to get the upper hand. These women had grown up children and were empty nesting in unhappy marriages. In the background, the popular culture was shifting and new age ideologies were gaining popularity and feminism was becoming more mainstream. Anne created a safe space for divorced or separated women and gay men who were still being persecuted in the 1960s. Anne was able to target these vulnerable individuals by making them feel as though they were important to her, saying things like, you are special and I've been waiting for you. Whether she intended it at the time, the following that Anne gained through her yoga classes was the beginning of the most prolific cult in Australian history. In 1964, Anne met scientist Rainer Johnson. Born in England, Johnson moved to Australia in the early 1930s to work as the Master of Queen's College at the University of Melbourne. Bit close to home. Yeah. He had lectured in natural philosophy and published papers on spectroscopy and also had an interest in more pseudosciences like parapsychology, and mysticism, and wrote several books on the topic. What is parapsychology? I think it's ghosts. Paranormal vibe. Mm. In the early 1960s, this work took Johnson to India, where he met the president, Savapalli Radhakrishnan, and prominent Indian mystics Vinoba Bhave and Swami Pratyagadmananda. Eventually, his writings on spiritual topics caused a stir within the Methodist church, which oversaw Queen's College, and led to his retirement from the position in 1964. Johnson was able to provide Anne with a physical meeting place for her burgeoning philosophy group at his home in Fernie Creek, in the Dandenong Ranges to the east of Melbourne. His home was called Santa Nicotin, and by 1968, the group had purchased an adjoining block of land and constructed a permanent meeting hall, which they called the Santa Nicotin Lodge. Meetings were held on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday nights. These groups were largely attended by middle-class professionals, with a large proportion being recruited from the medical profession, where the founding members also worked. At first glance, it seemed like these groups were simply a way for members to break away from the humdrum of 9-to-5 life and connect with their spirituality. However, it wasn't long before Santa santanicatin practices trickled down into how these professionals were carrying out their work,
1: and abusing their positions within the wider community to benefit the group. One such example is a psychiatric hospital in Kew, an eastern suburb of Melbourne. The New Haven Hospital was owned and managed by Marion Villamec, a Santa Nicodin member, and many of the staff and psychiatrists were also members, including psychiatrists John McKay and Howard Whittaker. The hospital was essentially used as an avenue for them to recruit new members for the group that would come to be known as The Family. Under the direction of John and Howard, patients were regularly treated using LSD and then indoctrinated into the group. One of the first members of the family came from this recruitment pipeline, and along with being treated with LSD, he also had electroconvulsive therapy and two lobotomies during the 1960s. This man, Mr. Peter Kibbe, who was a lawyer, was then utilised by the family to provide legal services to facilitate the incorporation of the group into a registered association and acquire some land to build a meeting hall. I wonder how good of a lawyer he was after his lobotomies. Yeah, and the electroconvulsive therapy and the LSD. He was under stress. That is a lot for your brain to take on. Soon after, when the group moved to a property known as Uptop near Eildon, Victoria, Anne obtained a number of children through irregular adoptions, which had been arranged by her network of professionals. At the time, adoption was poorly regulated in Australia, and there was still a significant amount of shame in having a child out of wedlock. Children born to single mothers were relatively easy to obtain, but sometimes the women were told that their children had been born with a birth defect or disability and that they would be better off without them in order to persuade them to give up their baby. There were also children who were birthed by members of the family and essentially signed over to Anne, There were cult hospitals with cult midwives and the babies were handed over to cult social workers who would falsify birth documents or adoption paperwork. She told the family that these children were going to survive the impending end of the world and would go on to become the new master race. To really sell the fantasy, Anne faked a number of pregnancies by wearing a homemade smock which featured a prosthetic stomach. These children grew up believing that Anne was their biological mother and referred to all other adults within the group as aunt or uncle. They either had their surname changed to Hamilton Byrne by deed poll, or were issued false birth certificates claiming Anne was their mother. The children were dressed in identical outfits, said to be similar to the Von Trapp family in The Sound of Music. Those who didn't have blonde hair would have their hair bleached platinum blonde to maintain similarity and give them the idea that they were all siblings. Over the years, Anne obtained 28 children through these adoptions. The popularity of the Santa Nicodin group among middle-class professionals, like doctors, lawyers and social workers, meant that Anne had access to people who could pull strings for her and bypass the usual red tape or checks and balances that might have alerted authorities that something was going on. These irregular adoptions are just one example of this. But the adoptees weren't the only children who were brought into the family. There were foster children and the children of other cult members who hadn't been adopted who would come and stay on weekends, holidays, or periods for up to a few years. It's estimated that up to 200 children passed through the family during their peak period at Uptop in the 1980s and 90s. I think for some of them, it was like a summer camp. Right. Their parents would send them up there to, like, get behaved. I wonder what a short stay
0: with them was, was like, you know?
1: Yeah. wonder if you'd come, go back home and be like, that was kind of weird. Yeah. Mom, I don't really like that place. (laughs) Yeah, can we not go back there? (laughs) These children would be the foundation upon which the family would be built. Growing up isolated from the outside world and not knowing any better, they would be easily manipulated into believing Anne's ideologies. The children were taught from a young age that Anne was the reincarnation of Christ and that she was from a royal family and owned castles in Europe. One survivor of the family has told of how difficult it is to describe the dynamic within the group. Saying quote, "It’s hard to say how devoted we were to her, how we hung off her every look and every thought she had about us. We wanted so much for her to love us, but I don’t think she ever really did. They had no access to the world outside Uptop, including traditional schooling. Instead, the children were homeschooled within the cult. The rules at Uptop were strict, and children caught doing the wrong thing were subjected to harsh physical discipline, including being beaten, and had their food restricted even for small mistakes like leaving a light on or accidentally dirtying their clothes. Sometimes Anne would carry out this physical discipline herself, beating the children with a stiletto shoe. But most of the time, it was other female adults within the cult, known as aunties, who would enforce punishments. They would be starved for days at a time, becoming so desperate for food that they would resort to raiding scraps from the bins or even eating leaves. All these methods were to keep the children under the control of Anne and other leaders within the cult. If this upbringing alone wasn't enough to hamper the children's development, they were also being dosed with psychiatric drugs, including benzodiazepines, antipsychotics and antidepressants. Once they reached their teenage years, they were introduced to LSD use through an initiation, where they were given large, relentless doses of LSD and left alone in a dark room for days at a time. These doses were prolonged and resulted in terrible withdrawal side effects, including depression, personality disorders, nightmares, and social withdrawal. Some children alleged that they were subjected to sexual abuse while they were under the influence of LSD. The one time I've accidentally... I accidentally recreationally hallucinated it was not fun. Like, it was you not was on a good plane. time. Good. I, was on, well, I was on a plane and that made it even worse, but... I was seeing stuff. And even afterwards, I didn't know what of what I'd seen was real. Yeah. Like, I was like, did that happen or like a really vivid dream? I can imagine they just thought they were in a dream for however long.
0: Yeah. And like, I feel like psychedelics tend to stay with you longer than other drugs. Yeah. Like for the weeks following, you're like, whoa, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Naturally, some of the children began to become restless and rebellious. This reached a boiling point in 1987 when Anne expelled one of her daughters, Sarah Hamilton Byrne, after their arguments became too much. Sarah, alongside another one of the children, eventually went to the police to tell them about what was going on in remote Victorian high country. Anne and her remote property had been on police radar for a number of years and the Australian Federal Police had attended four years earlier in 1983 looking for missing girl Kim Helm. Kim's father Hans had gone to the police alleging that his estranged wife Patricia, who was a member of the family, was hiding Kim at Uptop and wouldn't return her. Police attended the property, but didn't find Kim or her mother. The custody battle ended up going to court, where Anne's upstanding followers once again came in handy. Lawyer Peter Kibby and Dr. Christabel Wallace gave evidence against Hans. However, the judge wasn't buying whatever they were selling finding that their evidence was unreliable and ultimately finding in favour of Hans, ordering that Patricia return Kim back to her father and issuing a warrant for her arrest. Just a week later, the mother and daughter were found in Auckland, New Zealand. Eventually, with the help of Sarah and a private investigator, the police built up enough evidence to carry out a raid at Uptop on August 14, 1987. All the children living there at the time were removed and placed into care and adoption workers set about finding the children's biological parents. In addition to their mental turmoil, the children were in physically poor condition. Sarah had said that one of her younger sisters was 12-year-old at the time of the raid, but looked about 4 or 5, as she was under 120 centimeters and weighed less than 20 kilograms. Once she was taken from the cult, she returned to normal growth measurements within a year. That is insane. Yeah, 20 kilograms.
1: The mid sized dog in our house weighs thirty kilograms. I was just about to say my like small medium dog used to weigh about twenty kilograms.
0: Not to go about comparing children malnourished children to dogs, but that's just like just gonna say how
1: small she was. Yeah, like you can so easily pick up a little like a a twenty kilo dog to carry it. Yeah. And she was twelve. You couldn't you can't pick up a twelve year old. Just generally? I mean you shouldn't be able to most of the time, I feel. <laughs> most, I feel like they should be too heavy at that point.
0: Yeah, that's when they start growing and they start getting a bit lanky at 12, you know? Yeah, yeah. Around the same time, New Haven Hospital, which had been a pipeline for recruiting family members, finally closed down. And very soon after, a lawsuit was brought against the hospital by the relatives of group members who had died while in the care of New Haven. After the raid on Uptop and the closing of New Haven, Life looked very different for Anne and her then husband, William Byrne. Take her last name. I mean, no, she... I think that's where she got the Burn from. Oh my God. <laughs> I was about to go off. I was like, yes, girl, I know
1: you're running a cult, but at least you got him to take your last name. Yeah, hell yeah. William Byrne, feminist icon. <laughs> <laughs> no, Never mind. That's where, that's where her name came from there.
0: I mean, how is she the reincarnation of God if just taking her husband's last name?
1: And, you know? She, yeah, and like Hamilton, also not her original. Like she was married like four times. It was crazy.
0: I wonder which one Hamilton was. <laughs>
1: like, Is that one just like fun? She kind of liked that one. Yeah, she just kept held on to that one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she was already born with like four names. Yeah. So maybe it was like a foreshadowing that she was about to attain another four last she names. She know, collects them. Swaps them out like <laughs> Pokemon cards. <laughs> <laughs> the couple left Australia and spent the next six years living abroad. Luckily for them, over the last decade, she had been collecting rural properties in the UK and the US and building connections with similar alternative communities in these countries. During Anne's venture into the Siddha Yoga movement, she had stayed with Swami Muktananda in the Catskill Mountains in New York. She had even taken a number of the children with her on two occasions in 1979 and 1981. Anne purchased a nearby property in the Catskills to use as her US base, This is where she was eventually arrested in June 1993. Anne's international absence had tested the loyalty of her followers, and in 1990, two former cult members went to the police with information about their role in the fraudulent adoptions. Peter Kibbe, a lawyer who had offered legal services to Anne during his time in the cult, confessed to forging birth records on orders from Anne Hamilton-Byrne, Patricia McFarlane, A former auntie within the family also provided police with evidence of how the adoptions had been facilitated and what her role was within that. Finally, authorities had grounds to charge Anne and
1: extradite her back to Australia. Operation Forest, a joint task force between Australian, UK and US authorities, had been established to gather intelligence into the whereabouts of Anne in order to facilitate her extradition back to Australia, where she was facing charges for conspiracy to defraud and commit perjury, and another charge of making a false declaration. Operation Forest eventually tracked the pair down by tracing international phone calls made to Australia from the property in the Catskills. Her husband William and Elizabeth Whitaker, who was the wife of the LSD-prescribing New Haven psychologist Howard Whitaker, were co-defendants with Anne. The fraud and perjury charges related to the falsification of birth records – in particular where the births of three unrelated children had been registered by William and Anne as their own triplets. While these charges were eventually dropped against the pair, they pleaded guilty to making a false declaration and were fined $5,000. That is... I am shocked. Because
0: they essentially falsified these three lives. And like yeah. these three children grew up in a completely different like, timeline than they would have originally... Yeah, like, they sentenced those kids to life in a cult. I mean, they didn't last for their life. But, you know, to grow up in a cult, like... What? And they were just fined $5,000. I can't even buy a car for $5,000 today. You know? Like, yeah. that's it. Crazy.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, um... I mean, it was a little while ago, but... Yeah. Yeah, I think because, you know, the uh, the crime is only that they made a false declaration. You're kind of confined to the scope of what that is. But, yeah, I feel like even... Within that $5,000 seems lenient. Anyway. The fraud charges against Elizabeth Whitaker were also dropped. This, along with the alleged physical and mental abuse, was difficult to prosecute because of limited evidence. However, police were able to secure charges against Elizabeth and at least three other women for welfare fraud. Elizabeth was convicted of falsely obtaining $23,000 between 1980 and 1987. Welfare scams within the family were perpetrated between 1978 and 1988 and it's been confirmed that over $100,000 was fraudulently obtained by cult members during this time. Centrelink scam. <laughs> Centrelink fraud alert. They're the really OGs. As is common in our podcast, it <laughs> comes up quite a lot. Up until now, Anne had largely avoided any consequences for her fraudulent and potentially criminal actions. It was difficult to gather enough evidence about what was really going on inside the family, and family members, even those whose children were abused, were reluctant to make a complaint or testify against Anne. But Anne had built up quite a significant net worth, primarily through a number of investment properties which were bankrolled by her followers. When the family was investigated in the 1980s, police estimated that Anne's net worth could be up to 50 million Australian dollars. This, coupled with the lower standard of proof required for a civil claim, meant that a number of lawsuits were filed by disgruntled ex-followers. After the fall from grace of Anne's arrest in 1993, The family unit wasn't as strong as it once was, making Anne vulnerable. She faced numerous lawsuits which centred around seeking compensation for physical and psychological trauma, perpetrated by her and other adults in the family, against children who had grown up in the cult. It was during these legal proceedings that more details about the mistreatment of children within the family emerged. Court documents have stated that children had their heads held underwater and were administered heavy doses of tranquilizers like Valium, When children became unwell, they didn't have access to medical treatment, even for serious and potentially life-threatening illnesses like dysentery. This is when Anne's diagnosis of dementia became public. Since 2010, her lawyers had been defending these civil suits against Anne, citing her battle with dementia. It is reported that all the claims against Anne have settled out of court for amounts around $250,000, but not all settlement information is on the public record, so this might not be entirely accurate. In 2009, Sarah Hamilton-Byrne came back into the spotlight as she visited Anne at her home in Olinda for the first time since running away from the family in the 1980s. Since which time, Sarah has reconnected with her biological mother after discovering the fraudulent adoption practices which had been used by the family. She studied medicine and became a doctor, and published a book in 1995 about her experience in the family. Her visit potentially signaled that Anne's health was declining, and in 2013, it was reported that Anne's dementia had worsened, and she had been moved into an aged care home in Melbourne. While this meant that the end may be near for Anne, it also spelled the end for the family, which had still been operating, staying under the radar of authorities. When Anne left, an internal power struggle began over who would be Anne's successor, fracturing ties within the group. In a radio interview, former child of the family, Ben Shenton, who is now a pastor in Ballarat in Victoria's West, says that Anne's departure from the compound was like the closing of a door. Anne was able to walk into a room and control that group of people. But Ben stated that the group had become a toothless tiger without Anne at the helm.
0: It wasn't until six years later, in 2019, that Anne finally passed away on the 13th of June at the age of 97. There were a number of key supporters who were by her side right until the end, and were keeping things running within the cult by taking over a number of Anne's businesses and charities, such as Life for All Creatures. These devout followers were dedicated to Anne and believed in her message right up until the end. Some members even denied that Anne was in ill health, saying, quote, as a true yogi, Anne will go when she is willing and ready. However, those who had been victims of Anne's manipulation and violence, as well as the police officers who had attempted to put an end to it, felt immense relief knowing that Anne was no longer able to harm anyone, at least not personally. Ben Shenton described feeling relieved and said, quote, It's good to see a chapter being closed. Former lead detective Lex Deman, which I'm not joking, that is his name, he is Deman. Deman. <laughs> he had a slightly more malicious opinion. Describing the day of Anne's passing as, quote, a great day in that she is now dead. She can rot. The lives that she affected and her evil deeds. I shed no tear, not one drop. Bars. That's
1: bars. (laughs) Are you spitting some bars? (laughs) Is that not bars? He needs an alternate career as a a slam poet.
0: (laughs) I'm going to keep this bit in my back pocket. The bit where he said, she can rot.
1: Yeah, that's like I kind of love it. (laughs) Next time I'm roasting someone, (laughs) you can rot. (laughs) You can rot, dude. (laughs) Oh my god.
0: Anne's death in 2019 paved the way forward for a class action that had begun in 2017 but had yet to see any success. With Anne's estate now in the hands of the executors, her ability to protect her wealth by transferring assets to companies and charities were diminished. The class action saw lead plaintiff Leanne Joy Crease bring a claim against Anne's estate, as well as her charity Life for All Creatures, to which she transferred two properties in 2010. The class action was open to people who were, or believed themselves, to be children of Anne Hamilton Byrne and who had suffered personal injury, either physical or mental, as a result of cruel and inhumane treatment perpetrated by Anne or her agents during the period between 1968 and 1987. The plaintiff alleges that a duty of care arose from the relationship of dependence of the children on Anne and that Anne breached this duty by failing to take reasonable precautions to prevent damage suffered by the plaintiff. The plaintiff also sought orders that the transfers of the properties to life with all creatures be set aside on the basis that these were fraudulent and had been carried out with the intention to prevent the plaintiff from obtaining compensation which they were entitled to. This legal argument didn't make it to court. In December 2020, the Supreme Court of Victoria approved a notice of proposed settlement to be sent to group members. This notice included instructions of how group members can participate in the settlement and gave them a deadline of February 2021 to register their claim. In April 2022, the Supreme Court issued a further notice stating that the settlement had been approved and that the parties had agreed to the sum of $600,000 dollars inclusive of legal fees. Miss Creese was guaranteed a sum of $15,000 to compensate her for the personal burden of being the lead plaintiff, which would be in addition to any amount that she might be entitled to once the settlement amount is distributed between the group members. There are still members of the family quietly practicing in the Dandenongs in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, but they're diminished in numbers and for the most part avoid the spotlight. Michael Stevenson Helmer is one of those remaining members. As for the activities of the group, Michael has said they meditate and has suggested that the group has nothing to hide, telling media, quote, "You surmise we are secretive, but we have never hidden anything from you people." It seems like the family are still guided by their original motto: unseen, unknown, unheard. So there we go, a cult,
1: a cult, and one of the only ones probably that will really come up on the on the podcast. So long as we are um geographically located in Australia and New Zealand I feel like there's not too many other cults but Mm. if you like this episode and you like cults we can probably dig some more up I reckon I reckon there's another one or two out there there's got to be at least one in New Zealand I think I can almost think of one Mm. I mean they're still out there so they are watch out next time you're in the in the Dandenongs Helen (laughs) (laughs) I will I will. I'll ask around. Be like, do you know anyone yeah. in the family? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> imagine. Oh my god, you might get a target on your back if you Honest? do that.
0: I actually, uh, yeah, true. I shouldn't because the family might be like, are you interested? <laughs> um, Double agent. Yeah, I'll get. We'll do a follow up on this app from when I am in the family. <laughs> um, and I feel like out there, I wouldn't have to ask that many people. It's like how how many degrees removed is any everyone
1: from that? Mm, yeah, when it's like close by yeah, and like yeah geographically close and like yeah i feel like the yeah the amount of people that live out in that area divided by the amount of people who were in the cult <laughs> or vice versa or whatever however you do them yeah out, someone would know someone and if their members are still like kind of middle class mm. you know they probably have connections yeah um, and a lot of like anne had a lot more charities and companies and stuff than just life for all creatures like she had quite mm-hmm. a few like active Gigs and side hustles and stuff going on. So, maybe even in a commercial sphere or something like that, true, someone might have true. come across her.
0: I guess now they may have like stepped back over the line towards mm. not being a cult anymore. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I feel like that's probably fair. I would say they're I not mean, a cult anymore. Can you uncult a cult? <laughs> that's yeah <the> <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like, I wonder if they still have the same name. Maybe if they've rebranded. We could say mm. they've unculted themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, stay wary, everyone. You know, we'll leave you all to think about that. Yeah. And uh, we'll hit you with another story sometime.
1: Yeah. Hopefully not too long between drinks. I've got my shit together now. Yeah. I'm, feeling, I'm feeling good. I was guys starting full time work was really hard. <laughs> I think you recovered very quickly. To be honest. Thanks. It was, um, (laughs) I'm about two months in and I finally feel like I've landed on my feet now. So great. Hopefully it's hard. You've got to like reclaim all your time. It's really difficult. You've got to be like, oh no, I'm actually putting my foot down. And this is, you have to like, not just work. You have to be like, oh, I have other things I need to do. (laughs) Yeah. I need to do this. I need to do that. Yeah. Or you just like other things you want to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I have all these things I want to do. And I'm like. I'm like, I don't want to go to work. (laughs) I want to do this. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? At three months for me, I really
0: started feeling the like, is this it forever kind of feeling. Yeah. So maybe that's around the corner for you. Very fun. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for listening to us today. Hope you enjoyed this
1: little tale. And we will see you next time. Sounds good to me. Bye. All right. Bye.